the word you're looking for is ploy. Yes, that's it. You had to take it back last week, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving it back now. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the reason is because this is part two of our conversation with Bill Schnee. Yes. Legendary producer, arranger, composer, mixer, masterer. Did he also master? Um, probably probably did, but not too great. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a great part one, um, and we yeah. had Bill on for over an hour, so we had to break it up into two. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to pick back up where we left off. The cliffhanger was we were talking about his work with uh, Boz Gags, mm-hmm. and then I asked him a question, you know, going back to Chairman at the Board, which is his book that is out, uh, what, earlier this year? Yes. Right? And we're talking through some of the stories there. And one of the stories that you liked is, um, because we brought it up, you and I, in the past, is as you're working in the moment, are you able to identify which is the hit as a producer? Like, you know this is the hit. Yeah. Or that's yeah. the hit. I've even wondered that about big, big albums. You know, like, I was, the one I always reference is, like, Dark Side of the Moon. Did they know while they were making it, you know, when it was done, that they had greatness? Or did they just, like, I don't know, man, we'll see what people think. But it's always hard to identify that when you're inside. Yep. Well, I bet uh, I bet Quincy knew he had what he had in Thriller, don't you think? Like it was pretty obvious that they were treating almost every song as a single. I think I would go in agreement with that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think almost every song was a single. All but two, maybe. Yeah. Yep. Um, and there was something in the book you said where David Foster says, you know, sometimes when you try to predict what the hit will be, sometimes you nail it and sometimes you don't. And when you don't, you're super duper wrong. Isn't that what he said? Yeah. Foster thought about himself that, man, when I get it wrong, I get it really wrong. And Bill said kind of the same thing. He said, I'm kind of like Foster in that way. Yeah. Well, let's get back with our conversation with Bill. I asked him, uh, kind of like going back to the Thriller album or Dark Side of the Moon. It was like, have you ever worked on a project where you thought, Every track was a hit, which, uh, well, let's have him explain. I don't know if I can think of one where everyone is a hit. I mean, there's uh, one album that comes to mind that I absolutely love every song is Breakaway by Art Garfunkel. Mm. You know, people say, what is your favorite album? Now, there isn't one favorite album, but that that certainly, excuse me, that certainly is one of them. And, of course, Asia would be another where, again, I didn't necessarily think they were hits, but every day when we finished the session... And I'd pop a cassette in the car on the way home. I would just marvel at what the heck it was. And I remember, you know, after the second, third day going, what in the world are we doing here? This, you know, I don't know what this is. It's it's certainly not all pop, but it's kind of poppy. It's certainly not jazz, but it's jazzy. It even is kind of bluesy once in a while. I, I, what is this? All I, The only thing word I, I could think of was, I don't know what it is, but I know it's incredible. And so every one of those tracks to me, and to this day, the tracks themselves are just wonderful. I mentioned earlier, let me go back to it since we, I just mentioned Asia again. Uh, one of the cute stories that a lot of people have no idea. Um, when uh, It starts when Gary Katz, the producer of the guys, called me and said, would you like to do the next Steely Dan album? And I said, absolutely. He said, okay, I'm going to tell you, we're going to have a revolving door of drummers. Uh, there's going to be a new, you're going to be getting a new drum sound every two or three days. I said, okay, that's fine. And uh, then uh, I remember how excited I was that Steve Gadd was going to come in from New York for two days. And I was very enamored with 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, the drum track on Paul Simon's hit, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover with the drag snare and everything. And I thought, boy, you know, I can't wait to record this guy. And so he came in, and we recorded, and we did two tracks the first day, and they were both great. 
And so that night I called my friend Richard Perry and said, Richard, you know Steve Gadd, right? And he goes, yeah. Said, I'm recording him with Steely Dan and he is a monster. And he said, do you think I could get a session with him? I said, well, he's leaving town after, we have one more day tomorrow and then he leaves town. Let me, we don't start until two o'clock. Let me see what Gary says. So I called Gary Katz, who is a big fan of Richard Perry's, and said, you know, Richard would love to come in and try to do a session in the morning before we start. And he knew Richard's ways of, again, always trying to get something better, which in tracking might take hours and hours and hours. And he said, okay, but you got you got to get him out on time because the guys will kill me if we start late. And I said, don't worry, I'll turn the console off. He, he won't go over. And so... He came in the next day with this w wonderful little animated guy named Leo yeah. Sayer. Oh, yeah. And we, uh, you know, it, it doesn't often happen that you know a hit right away. Uh, but that one, when we started on You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, and he put the, the rough vocal on it, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is such a smash. And go back and listen to it now. You'll hear the uh, this first cousin of 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover drag snare on, uh, on, that, on that hit. Yeah, supposedly Jeff Percaro played on all the demos, but wasn't available for that session. So that kind of twists the whole thing into a nice knot. Yeah, they, they had been recording the album, and and I've never I never asked Richard. They may have already recorded that song. In fact, I don't know because they were at Richard's studio making that album when I called him and told him about this. But uh, but we definitely did it that morning. And funny enough, in what is absolutely a world record for Richard Perry, we got it in a little over two and a half hours. <laughs> and of course, Richard always trying to push something. Uh, can we do another song? And I said, okay, but we've <laughs> got to quit. At, we got to quit at one. Uh, and he said, okay. And we cut the, another song, which ended up being the third single, When I Need You, which I didn't do, was the second single, also number one. But the, How Much Love was the third single from that Endless Flight album. So we cut those two singles in the morning and cut the song Asia uh, in the afternoon. Oh, how's what that, a day. How's that for a full day of recording? You know, I'm kind of stunned with that, but I, I had a question sitting here in front of me I wanted to ask. And it kind of takes us a little bit off track, but um, I'd always wondered, and it's somewhere in the back of my mind, I sort of knew the story, but it wasn't until I read the book that it all kind of came back to me because I was pretty young at the time when um, Neil Diamond, um, You Don't Bring Me Flowers, which obviously the original, at least the original version of him was on September Morn album, which you did. And then, of course, it's the duet version on the following album that becomes the smash. And right. it's kind of funny because I'd always been thinking in my head, how did that, who decided that we need to do this as a duet? And, and, and now I realize that that question is kind of funny because that isn't how it happened. If you want to tell a little bit of how it. Sure. Well, what, what happened was um, that great um, uh, song was also recorded by Barbara on one of her albums. And some enterprising DJ in the Midwest took the two versions and cut them together 
making them sort of a sort of a duet. They never sang <laughs> with each other, but you know they they each had different lines, that, and uh, it it started getting a lot of notoriety. In fact, another DJ or maybe two more around the country did the same thing, and Columbia said. Ah, here, you know, again, when in doubt, do the obvious. Yep. Hey, how about this? Why don't you guys go in and make a record together of it? And so uh, that's what happened. When <laughs> The other funny thing about that is when uh, I didn't record it, I just mixed it. And um, uh, Bob Gaudio, the great, great songwriter and producer of the Four Seasons uh, group, uh, was the producer. And when, when I mixed it... Um, uh, I, on the console, un, underneath all the faders, which have all the instruments and vocals on them, we always have a piece of tape where we write what everything is. So it'd be, you know, violins, violas, cello, blah, blah, blah. And then one of them ha said Neil, and the other one I wrote Babs. Uh, that was from an, a, an well, L.A. You had to save space, right? Huh? You had to save space. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was from uh, a, a, an L.A. DJ that would, when he played her songs on the radio, would say... That was Babs, as she is seldom called. And so when, when Barbara came in to, to hear the mix, I put her in my chair. And before I pushed play, she looked down and went, Babs. And I went, I, I got down on her. I said, that's you. And she, she chuckled. <laughs> Did she reach over and push that fader up? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, she put all the other ones down. Yeah, the same thing, right? I got you. <laughs> No, I I gotta say, uh, I gotta say, I've uh, you know I started in 1970 with Barbara, and, and I have not consistently for sure, but uh, I've worked throughout the years with her, and uh, I've uh, I've never had the first problem with her. I don't. I think I'm the only person that I'm the only person I've ever heard say that. Jeff Percaro said that in in the book that was uh, actually he didn't write but was assembled that he was absolutely great or she was absolutely great to the musicians and the engineers. It was the producers she let out all her venom on, was what, what uh, Jeff said. Huh. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I, I never had problem one with her. Tom, you had something? Go ahead. I, I was going to say, it was going to bring it to sort of present day, um, yeah. post the book, which we'll come back to the book, but um, it's got to be interesting, even for a lay person like me who doesn't understand half of what you and John do, but to know that your career had to have evolved as technology evolved, and we talked a little bit about that, but you're still producing today, obviously, and you've got a, a song that you worked on um, with an artist named Alia that comes out September 17th. So do you take, when you're working with a modern-day artist releasing modern-day music, do you borrow from your tricks of the past, or do you try to stay true to what we feel is the moment and what new audiences want to hear today? Well, my version of producing uh, has always been, you know, it depends on the artist, uh, what you do. It's sort of like a painter. If the painter comes in and is given, you know, carte blanche, make my house look great, and he comes into a room and it's, at, it's you know, there's, it, there doesn't need any paint. He doesn't need to do anything. You leave it alone. He goes in the next room and, uh, yeah, you could use a coat of paint. You know? And then he goes into the next room and, oh, there's a hole. I'm going to have to patch it and then tape it and then sand it and then I'll paint it. So he does whatever he has to do, and that's the way I look at producing. Uh, some things, some groups, you have to get... A, or, whatever you get more involved with than others kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, early on I realized that a couple of things. One was if I, if I was going to have a long career, I was going to have to take care of my hearing. So I've always worn earplugs live everywhere. 
and done everything I could to, to protect my hearing. Of course, I didn't realize back then that eyes would be more important than ears in, in the <laughs> new millennium with working on computers, uh, and, and it's almost the case, um, uh, which is another thing which we can touch on for those that are interested, is the whole idea of, we, you know, we're much more divided, our brains are much more divided now because, you know, back in the analog days, uh, the only thing the engineer had to think about was dancing meters, and, and the rest of it he's using his ears. But you know, today we're you know we're we live on the screen. The screen is is, is everything. Um, but in addition to that, I knew early on that I didn't want to be. <laughs> the example I came up with is I don't want to be the guy that's like the third generation in 1900 of buggy whip makers, and his father and father before him were making the yeah. best buggy whips. And he now makes the best buggy whips you can buy. And, you know, a few years later, nobody cares about buggy whips. They all want a car. So right. you got to stay current with what's going on. And, of course, the biggest element of that for me uh, was uh, digital, going digital in general, and especially when it went to hard disk recording. So uh, I jumped into it full, full force and... Uh, and, and haven't looked back, <laughs> for better or worse. And here again now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I find myself, for better or worse, in the uh, immersive world once again. And I do love, you know, I mix. there was a system, you guys might not know about it, in the early 70s, there was a multi-channel system on, on disc, on the LP. Quad? Two different ones. It was four-channel. It was two front and two rear. Yeah. And it was on the LP record. It was, you know, special records and special playbacks. And, of course, there were two systems, and they weren't compatible. And some con record companies went with one, and some companies went with the other. And so uh, it, it died um, a, a death. But I loved mixing that. And then, uh, obviously, 20 years ago, we started on the 5.1 surround system right. whatnot. And now we've got the, the full immersive with Dolby Atmos and the uh, Sony system. Uh, for that kind of stuff, but here I am again at 74, having to learn a whole new set of technology, and this is the most, uh, this is, well, it's not as more complicated than Pro Tools was to learn, that's for sure, but but staying current, yeah, is, is has been very important. I, um, my, my one touch with uh, the West Coast music scene is I did a, uh, a mastering session out at Steve Hall's place, Future Disc, when he was in Hollywood, and it was interesting in there because, well, two things I took away from that that I just wanted to get your feeling on. One, he had a whole bunch, all of his gear was sort of either homemade or proprietary because it, it you know, was a very specific purpose and it only had to fit his ear for what he was doing. Um, so I wonder about that in your new studio. But also, he said no matter how long it took, he would do only one mastering session a day. A, probably to save his ears, but also because he felt that if I got my ears sort of tuned to one thing and I tried to switch gears, then I could be fooled by what I was hearing. So do you have any, uh, you know, at your home studio now that you're maybe, um, you know, able to work w without people always there over your shoulder? Do you have your own gear? Do you have specific ways that you work? Okay, be sure to reel me back in for... Um to talk about Alia, maybe I should do okay. that first. So remember this question, because uh, that's with regard to talk about changing, uh, you know, staying current. Yeah. Uh, since First of all, since I moved to Nashville, I've done two of the best records I've been involved with in the last 15 years. I talk about them if you like, but they're also on the website. Uh, fantastic records, musically. Um, but Alia, 
uh, I started the album before COVID, and I'm excited that we're just last night she wrote me, and we're getting back into finishing it. But as you mentioned, the single is coming out, and when I got uh, this is a very very creative girl from Russia, and I say creative because she does all kinds of things in addition to singing and, and songwriting. Uh, she paints, and she's a photographer, and she's done videos that she does the editing on, and and so on. She's just, you know, she she just drips with creativity, and and it and with a lot of people like that that are super creative, uh, it's it's left of center. It's not down the middle in any way. It's definitely in, in every way. But it was ob one thing was obvious right away to me was that in working with her, it was going to have to be a modern sounding record. And so, as, as I've said, it's kind of funny because I have a huge collection of vintage tube microphones uh, that, I that I collected since the early 70s. And um, that it's quite well known, in, at least in, in L.A. And, uh, and yet, on her album, the only microphone that was used was on her voice. Because this, this whole album, <laughs> it was the first time I made an album in the box. Wow. And oh, I made yeah. it with a couple of friends of mine in Los Angeles uh, as uh, the programming and coming up with uh, the grooves and, and sounds and stuff. And uh, they were absolutely instrumental in how it, everything came out. But it was an absolute blast working uh, uh, that way. I really love it. Uh, that's why I'm really looking forward to getting back to it. Wow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. One of the albums that I did here... I'll mention at least one of them, which is I only produced one country artist in my career, and that was 25, 26 years ago. Her name was Mandy Barnett. And in the book, I mention uh, that uh, she's the person that not enough people know about because mm -hmm. uh, I, she is one of the best singers I have ever put a microphone in front of. And obviously, I've put my mic in front of a lot of incredible singers. But she is absolutely one of them. And she has done an album uh, with, the, <clears throat> excuse me, with the songs from Billie Holiday's uh, In Satin record, her second to the last record. It's a Torch album, Torch songs. And the uh, producer got uh, Sammy Nestico, this old school arranger from back from the 40s, 50s. Uh, he was he was 95, I think, when he did the arrangements to the whole thing. And uh, it was so cute because when the producer called him and said, "You know, I wanted I've got an incredible singer. I've got those great torch songs. I want you to arrange them." He said. Fred, I'm 95 years old. You know, let me see if I can do one, and if I if I can do that, give it to someone younger to work it. You know, model after it. But beautiful, beautiful to take. 
And so he turned in the first one, and Fred called him and said, it's gorgeous, Sammy. And he said, okay, let me try two. And the rest, as you can imagine, he did them all. And when Fred called to talk to his wife uh, after number six, his wife said, I got to... before I put Sammy on, I got to tell you, Fred, you're keeping him alive with this album. He is living to, to work on this album. He's loving it. And unfortunately, he wasn't well enough to f- come out to uh, Nashville when we cut it. But I cut it live at Oceanway Studios with a 55, 60 piece orchestra and this gorgeous Ooh. songbird singing these songs. And it, it's called Every Star Above, Mandy Barnett. And it is definitely kind of an old school kind of album, obviously, as opposed to Aya, which is all super modern, yeah. whatnot. It's an orchestral album, but absolutely gorgeous. And a very important album. I don't really ever think about uh, the Grammys getting them, you know, being nominated or whatever. And obviously, I've been I've been personally nominated as an engineer eleven times. Uh, I've only won twice, which makes me a nine-time loser. Uh, but if you and if you ask my kids, that's not a high enough number. But anyway, <laughs> stop it with the dad jokes, Bill. Um, <laughs> but anyway, people say, "Are you going to write another book?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm thinking about my next book will be B- B- Dad Jokes by Bill Schnee." There we go. Because my kids will tell you I got enough of them. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Now, what was your question? The question was about um, any particular gear that you have at your place or process that now that you're kind of alone. I mentioned earlier that that little studio, it was Continental Sound, that I, <clears throat> that I did the direct-to-disc in, and later would be where I did Asia. It was called Producer's Workshop by then, but it had the same console. Uh, it was homemade. And uh, it, it turned out that in my travels, all of the, the, the best sounding consoles were not made from manufacturers they were homemade and in almost every case it's because they were incredibly simple and doug Sachs, the great massing engineer who i've called my uh, uh uh third mentor graduate mentor as it were uh you yeah, he know, gets more ta- mentioned in the book than anyone else yeah had, had, <laughs> had told me that when it comes to analog less is more the less analog electronics the more sound you're going to get of the original pure sound there's plenty of boxes that we can plug into or plugins today that we can plug into to change a sound, mess it up in any one of a variety of ways, but nothing, nothing will go back to it being more natural. Yeah, we have a lot of tape plugins that will hopefully take, take some of the edge of the digital off and whatnot, and they, they do an okay job and whatnot, but that's a different thing. Uh, that, that's not going back to a more natural, organic sound. And so that's what you had to do to to get that. So when I built my studio in Los Angeles, the whole concept was, first of all, have a great sounding room because all the recording studios that I worked in in the 70s had been built as dead boxes. Uh, And when when, uh, multi-track, 16-track especially, came out, uh, everyone wanted everything isolated so that you'd have complete control in the mix down to be able to take things out and so on and so forth. So they started building studios where, that were dead so that this instrument's sound didn't get into that instrument's microphone across the way. Unfortunately, the room that does that doesn't allow the instrument where it is to, to breathe and sound very good. So I knew I wanted a good sounding room and I didn't know how to get it, but I told the architect, I'll know it when we get it. And uh, with seat of the pants and prayer, we were able to get it. And so a great sounding room with minimal electronics, great sounding microphones, I'm sorry, great sounding microphones, which I said I collected all these old tube microphones, and then as little electronics as possible. And so that mm-hmm. led us to building the console for the studio. And that was a, 
speaking of arduous processes, that was one. Uh, but I'm really glad we did it. It was one of those situations, of course, why as soon as it was finished, it was the prototype. It was also the production model. If we could have started over right then, we could have done a better job. But it still came out pretty darn good. When I sold the studios, the record business started going down um, and the record companies were not going to pay what I charged for that studio and I wasn't going to bastardize the thing. Uh, whether I made the right decision or wrong, I sold the studio, kept all the equipment, opened a mix room first in uh, Los Angeles. And I might still be there except that the uh, owner of the building sold it uh, and uh, when my lease was up I, I had to leave. And that's when I talked to my wife and said, am I going to do this again? And we decided to make a change and try the great experiment, which was to try come to Nashville, where it's still, obviously, it's a music town. There's actually more recording going on here than there is in Los Angeles or New York. Yep. But it was done as an experiment, and uh, it's been a very successful one for me. I'm very, very happy here. What that meant in, uh, in terms of what I have now is that I've done everything I can to to make digital sound as good as possible. For me, that means not mixing. I mix in the box because, <laughs> because you, you, I, I think you really have to these days if you're working for uh, any demanding producer, artist, or record company because they want these ridiculously small changes because they're so used to people mixing in the box that you know if they want the guitar up 1 dB in the chorus, uh, if you have to reconstruct a whole analog mix on a console, right. you're, it never comes back the same. Sometimes it comes back better. Sometimes it comes back the same. Sometimes it doesn't come out anywhere near as good. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it can be a nightmare. So I, I gave up on the console a long time ago. So I'm in the box as far as limiting and equalization. And then uh, I sum analog through... Uh, very proprietary stuff built by Josh Florian of JCF Audio. It's, uh, I have 16 channels of his homemade D to A and eight channels of his tube D to A, which are really, really sweet. And so those all go into a passive uh, uh, combining network, really, uh, and, uh, ha and that has one amplifier on it. And so now I'm analog so that I can, uh, I have here to my left and right, um, uh, half a dozen uh, tube and a couple of solid-state um, compressors that I can use and do use almost always uh, and of course can still use digital ones in addition or instead of if if the song demands it and so on. Do you take pictures of them to save your settings? Because that's what I have to do with my outboard gear for the exact reason you said. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the one thing. So, Well, it's speaking of dreams come true, John. I bet you would be a kid in a candy store over at Bill Schnee's house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, this has been awesome. I mean, privilege to talk to you, Bill. Uh, the book is Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. I'm assuming it's available Amazon, your website. Um you don't have to be an audio technician to understand or to enjoy this book. I can vouch for that. In fact, if I can interrupt you, in fact, the funny thing is, uh, it says in the intro, I've written this book for anyone like me who loves music and records but hasn't been as fortunate to go behind the curtain. So, in fact, when I turned, and when I turned the book in, I asked the publisher what he thought uh, of my voice, how I had done that. And he said, yeah, it's pretty good, but I think for educational purposes, you should put some stuff in there. So I went back and wrote 15,000 more words, and I love what the editor did. He put them as a, an appendices at the end. 
so that the guy next door that I really wrote the book for, he doesn't have to, you know, he can go into their five pages and go, this doesn't interest me. Although I've gotten a lot of comments from people that, that, that I wouldn't have expected to like that, that said it was very interesting. I'm not sure I understood all of it, <laughs> uh, but like that. On the other hand... <laughs> we get hand, that all the time. Yeah. On the, <laughs> on the other hand, uh, I knew that a lot of people, I was not writing the book for uh, a lot of pe- what a lot of people wanted out of me. And in fact, until two weeks ago, Every written review on Amazon was a five-star until the first one was a two-star, and the guy said, I didn't learn anything about technical <laughs> issues. May as well watch <laughs> Sylvia Massey videos on YouTube. <laughs> oh, gee. And, and, and I, you know, I can't blame him, I, you know, because, like I said, he was expecting a, a different yes. thing. And now last week I got another one, a three-star this time. The guy said the same thing. He said, great stories, but I, I wished I'd learned more technical stuff. Well, I give it five stars, and I would just add, anyone who listens to our podcast is a lover of Yacht Rock, and if you love Yacht Rock, you will love this book. Even if you just love interesting stories and have a passing interest in music, this book is for you. So, Yeah, I do want to – well, I wanted to encourage everybody, get the book. Get the book, and uh, if you get the book, there is a code at the back that uh, allows you to go to Bill's website, and it opens up a whole bunch – of additional stories that uh, what were the cutting room floor, I guess, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the deleted uh, scenes, <laughs> the deleted scenes, but it's, it's just more of the book. It's like another 30% of the book, but I, I, I wasn't going to ask for one more story, but if you can tell this one briefly, cause this one is hilarious and it's short as you called it. And this one was on the website, the Orleans oopsie. <laughs> oh, I, um, in my, in my music room, I had a, a, a basket for things that were sent to me to see if I wanted to produce uh, would be in the basket. And I got a tape and, and read what they had said about it, you know, whatever, you're interested in producing the next album with this, with this group, whatever. That's what I would do. Well, there was one that I didn't, I knew what it was because the, they'd called me and I didn't open it. And I just threw it in the, in the box, or so I thought. It actually went behind the box and I missed it completely. So uh, I was cleaning out, uh, I think six weeks later or something, uh, and cleaning out the music room, and I pulled the box out, and I saw, oh, look, there's one that didn't make it. And I opened it up and put it in, and the song Love Takes Time came up. a demo of it and I went oh my gosh and I immediately called because I knew it was a hit I called the record company and the A&R guy basically laughed at me I think they were mastering it that day or something (laughs) (laughs) he never heard from me so he had no idea that I would be interested he thought I would just pass I said no I would have called you and said pass I don't just do that but oh well I said good luck with it and they had some pretty good luck with it they did they did Mm -hmm. well again everyone should go out get the book Search for it by name, Chairman at the Board. Uh, a delicious pun, as an English major would appreciate, like myself. Thanks a lot, Bill. This is, again, this was an honor. John, it's your dream come true. You want to close it out? Well, Bill, I just wanted to say that uh, I learned so much from this book, both technical and non-technical. We really appreciate uh, you giving us this time, and just thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Well... That was awesome and amazing and a thrill and an honor. And I'm especially uh, going back to what I said at the beginning, a dream come true, yes, for you? Yes, worth a double episode for sure. 
Yep. It's unique too. I mean, you probably don't want to emphasize this point too much out of humility, but it's interesting to talk to. So it's, it's rare a person who has all four, what seem might be what might seem like seamless skill sets to have one or the other arranger, producer, mixer, composer. It's very rare though. It, you're, you're that way. And so Bill's, you know, the, all I th- think of maybe a couple guys you said, right? Yeah. I'm kind of that way out of necessity because of, uh, you know, budget constraints or whatever, but it is, it's a completely different mindset to be, a recording engineer than it is to be a producer. A producer is much more of a people person. They've, they've got to be tight on the schedule. They got to be thinking ahead. They got to be big picture people, but they also got to be able to follow the individual moments that are happening. They have to be able to motivate people to get the best out of them. And you're dealing with all different kinds of people, all different kinds of egos, you know, egos that don't want to be told. I mean, lead singers that do not want to be told how to sing something or do not want to be told, you know what, do another take, where in their mind they think it was perfect. you got to juggle all that. The engineer, while all that's going on, can kind of just sit behind the board, you know, roll his eyes, whatever, and, uh, (laughs) you know, he doesn't have to get into any of those wars. You know, the flip side of that is that those are the guys that are really like – analytical in terms of, you know, they're watching meters. They're, they're sometimes listening to what's being recorded without hearing what's being recorded. And I, what I mean by that is when I was recording voiceovers for people, they would ask me, how does that sound? Does that make sense? And I'd say, you know, when I'm recording you, I'm listening to the sound of your voice. I'm not paying attention at all to the words you're saying. And so these engineers can be in a completely different place because they're not hearing the song. They're hearing, is the guitar breaking up? Is the piano mic'd properly? All those things. So it's amazing that he is yeah. both. Well, what were your biggest takeaways or your favorite parts of the book? Well, the thing that really grabbed me that he kept going back to was he kept mentioning how early on when he discovered recording and then when we asked him about his mixing process – Everything went back to he was trying to get the emotional content through the recording, whether he was – when he mentioned it, uh, Richie Podolor's uh, uh, place that had that crude equipment and he came in and listened. And what he noticed was the emotional content coming out of the speakers or when he is mixing a song, he's trying to get a performance, as he said. He's not looking to, okay, mix their intro. Okay, that's done. Now I'll mix the verse and we'll edit those together later. He wants to do the whole song from beginning to end. And get a flow and get a performance again because of the uh, emotional content. Yeah, well, and you're listening for those things because your ear is trained. But all we hear is the the genius, you know, that comes out of it, and the the genius that we're hearing is part and parcel to what you just said. Is because that's yeah, that's a very you know painstaking approach and exactactitude. Yeah, and, man, it, it can be and artistic at the and same it's time. It's artistic at the same time. Yeah, because it is in, in a way like watching Bob Ross paint. You know, it's little bits at a time, but it's gradually all working towards some sort of complete finish that that you recognize when it's done, you know? He made me laugh, too, when he was talking about there's some singers that he's worked with, and he wasn't going to name names, that if they had to be tuned or fixed, um, you know, they could never be singers. And it's funny because I have this, my ongoing list of what I call singers, great singers that can't sing, or who told you you could sing singers, (laughs) you know? So I think of like guys like Rick Ocasek, you know, or Bob Dylan. I mean, these guys are legendary artists and brilliant sound at what they do. But man, you you would listen to that and say, if they came in and auditioned for your band and said, I want to be your lead singer, you'd be like, well, who who told you you could sing? Let's start there. (laughs) But they're brilliant people, you know? So it's, Fagan is one of them, really. 
you know? Oh, yeah, really? I mean, you could just, the 90s were littered with people like yeah. that. Kurt Cobain yeah. and, you know, Eddie Vedder and whatever. So, yeah, well, sometimes it's the art that takes uh, takes over from the form. It does. Right? Sometimes the art is just better, yep. so. Well, I'll give you my overarching observation as a writer and as a reader of the book. My favorite part was just the way, and I told Bill this, the way he tells the story. It almost feels like I sat down at a campfire and I said, Bill, tell me about how you got into this. And he just told me the whole story. Yeah. If people enjoyed listening to him talk, that's exactly what you get in the book. Exactly. So it's a really good accessible style. The stories are great. And if you're a rock fan, like I said, you're going to love it. If you just like great stories, you're going to love it. So anything else before we uh, float on into the lightning round? Uh, That would be a no, sir. Let's float on into the lightning round. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ooh, lightning warning. Yes, uh, sailor's warning. Yes. Right? Let me uh, kick things off here with the does it float your boat? Um, I didn't realize we'd have two episodes with Bill, so I didn't prepare two Yacht Rock, or I'm sorry, Bill Stane-specific lightning rounds. But I'm going to ask you um, one of my favorite, my, my current crush is the Lionel Richie stuff. You used to make fun of me because I kept bringing it in, and you're like, now you're hooked. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know if you brought this one. Maybe you already did. No, but, there was a uh, period you... back then when I brought, like, out of six weeks, maybe three or four of the weeks uh, in that six, I brought Lionel Richardson's, and you're like, come on, enough. Well, I just did Love Will Conquer All, like, two episodes. That's true. Ago. I know. So uh, I'm going back. Um, what are your thoughts on Round and Round? You want a good reason why love is so cruel, Funny, that song keeps coming up on one of my Spotify playlists, one of those made-for-you lists, so they know I love it, and, and that's absolutely got everything to me a Yacht Rock song needs. Total A-plus for me on that. Yeah. It's funny, and I guess the reason why maybe you and I'll speak for myself, why Lionel Richie keeps coming back is because I don't place him just from a context and memory standpoint in the same Neither group and era and era and timeline. Mm-hmm. But the dates all check out. The music checks out most of it, right? It does, and so I think that uh, maybe it's just we're trying to pump it up a little bit and get, make people aware That's of right. the, the, the yachty Lionel. We are Hans and Franz, and we are pump you up. up. All right, well, what do you got? I'm sure it's uh, right on point and on top. Well, yeah, but it also connects to your uh, float your boat from the uh, last episode, the first episode with Bill, because you asked me about uh, Lido Shuffle. So now I'm going to go to the next album, which is the one that Bill did work on, which is um, Middleman. And this has a very similar rhythm and feel to Lido Shuffle, which we know ranked a 47.5. Um, this is from 1980, but it's got that same feel as I said. What do you think about Breakdown Dead Ahead? Danger, 
Hmm. I wasn't that familiar with that song, to be honest with you. Who's the uh, personnel on that? Well, the, uh, the the interesting story about it that uh, Bill tells in the book is that's Rick Murata on drums, and those right where we ended those drum fills uh, on that break, uh, Rick kept uh, lobbying for this idea. Let me double those. So he played it down. You wanted to play it again over the top. And Bill kind of humored him and said, all right, fine, we'll do it. And uh, they recorded it, and he loved the way it sounded. And he tells this story about uh, Rick Murata kind of laying back on a couch and as they're doing the uh, the playback, and Bill saying, yeah, I like it. And Rick goes, yeah, now it's a hit. <laughs> <laughs> Doubling the drum yes. fills made it a hit. Something that 99.9% of the listeners will yeah, miss completely. Exactly. Makes it a hit. Mm-hmm. Well, I love drummers that way. Um, but it did when you, you know, you said as we're playing it back, I said, listen for the drum fill here. And it's like, there's something that sounds different about yeah. that. I didn't know that it was the doubled part, but, uh, as far as does it float my boat, I'm not going to get into full detail explanation as to why, cause that'll come next week when we do our boss gags deep dive, Ooh. but, uh, it's a soft no for me. Okay. It's not that I don't like the song, just to be clear. I think I'm kind of in the same place. I mean, I'm at the uh, 47.5 that Ludo shuffle got. I would give about the same to this. Me too. Yep. Maybe 46.83. So it's four. It's one, two, nine. Repeating. Heavy math. Of course. Of course. All right. Uh, give us your uh, best or at least your most recent uh, buried treasure. This would be uh, a song that was mixed by Bill. 1979, England Dan John Ford Coley from the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive album written by Todd Rundgren. Love is the answer. That is the answer. That's, that song is the answer to what ails you. Coming out of the bridge into the end choruses, there's one of those things that Bill talked about there where people want very minutia fixes. And so he had this mix that everybody loved. They were in mastering and all this. And at one point, I guess it must have been uh, whoever the producer was on that, I don't recall, decided, you know what? Coming out of the bridge, I think I want the lead vocal like 1 dB louder. So Bill's like, I got to go back and remix this whole thing for that. And he told the story right. about you sometimes you can never get back to it. But I guess what he did, he was managed to match the mix up well enough in that section that he just mixed that one little section and edited it into the master. So there's a little edit point right at the end of the bridge. That's really interesting. I mean, nowadays that would be really easy to go in and do, easy. right? Yeah, but back then it was a major detail yeah yeah very interesting i mean see i mean we didn't even get to any like really what the tip of the iceberg of the the stories if we covered 10 percent you know they're they're all fun like that you know what do you have for buried treasure i have a tune it's uh related to bill in that the artist's name is bill but also that they they work (laughs) well done bill Bill champlin so um this tune uh the the topic kind of came up in the Facebook group because there was somebody who posted like a typical Bill Champlin song and I, like a quote unquote famous one. I can't remember which one it was now. And they said, I just don't understand why people think he's Yachty. And then all these people started commenting <laughs> on all these like buried treasures. Well, first of all, 
I mean, the, the track record speaks it for does. itself. <laughs> but they were digging out all these very, like, yachty-sounding tunes yeah. that were like, this is why. If you can't hear yacht in that, then I don't know what to tell you. And one of which I think just needs to get unburied because obviously the uh, there's a lot of people who don't know the yachty stuff of Bill Champlin. And I am going to submit to you, sir, Gotta Get Back to Love. That's the one for me. That one defines, you know, I, I've always called JoJo the most defining yacht rock tune, but man, this, that one's really, really close. It is really close. And yeah. if you ever need any convincing that Bill Champlin is indeed oh yachty. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that draws it up and knocks it down right there. It sure does. Yep. Well, you, it's your turn, I think, for off the map. Unfortunately, I'm taking us way off the map because this okay. has nothing to do with our guest or today's topic. But I've been sitting on this one since I told you, I don't know, months ago now, how I discovered uh, Mama's Gun, which was I knew all about Young Gun Silver Fox, but I didn't know any of the prehistory. Yeah. And so I think I also told you that not all of Mama's, well, most of Mama's Gun is not Yachty really at all. No, you said it's pretty funky, though. It's funky and it's kind of like an homage. If if the Young Gun Silver Fox is an homage to the Yacht Rock era, I feel like this is um, a lot of times an homage to the Soul era. Yeah, okay. Of, around the same time, maybe yeah. some Motowny stuff. But one of the songs that's kind of yacht adjacent is Mama's Gun song called We. We. said that the, the the smoother side of soul is one of the most difficult places to draw the line where yacht rock is for sure this uh i i hear um like references to marvin gay kind of in that yeah it's very nice very, i wouldn't uh, call yeah. it super far off the map no no and it's close enough it's only one degree removed from young gun silver rocks which has right. some songs that are actually been rated so right uh, that's from 2018 but uh do invest yourself in some mama's gun i think you'll find yourself better for it all right, well, I got to go for my off the map to um, sticking with Bill. I'm going to go to the, the album that Bill said is the favorite album that he worked on. I'm going to go to the okay. Art Garfunkel album, and it's from 1975, so we're a little early. Again, this is off the map, um, but super nostalgic about this one. This was one of those, I forgot that I forgot that one kind of thing. And man, it, it takes a while to get to the chorus, but when it does, I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I forget about this tune? But uh, it was actually produced by Phil Ramone, and it was it kind of marked um, a potential historic moment where Art Garfunkel and Paul Simon were going to work together again, because they do this song together, and people thought, oh, is this the beginning of them getting back together? Didn't play out that way, but what a great song this is. My Little Town. Well, that is, uh, that's, was off my map completely because I don't remember that. No, I was five years old at the time, and it, ha- it hasn't crept back in, but uh, interesting. So I just pulled it up on Spotify to listen to it a little bit, and uh, the artist's name is Simon and Garfunkel because it's off a compilation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they put it actually on um, 
Paul Simon's Still Crazy After All These Years album. So it appeared on both albums, and I think it yep. went into the top 10 by virtue of being on both albums. But man, when that hook builds at the end and it just gets bigger and bigger, I just I get so swept away by it. I hear a little bit of Chicago in that somewhere. Mm. I don't know. Interesting. Huh. Just like the melody line, so I can hear uh, Peter Cetera singing that. But that's a good tune, so I'm glad uh, that's both Unburied and On My Map. Ooh. So, well, I think you hit two out of three. I don't think it's Yachty, though. No, I did not declare that. <laughs> that's on the boat. All right. Well, <laughs> very good. Well, I don't know how to say goodbye. to. I mean, that was awesome. I, we could have kept Bill on forever. Well, um, we could simply say ahoy polloi. 